the risk factors for getting COVID are not the same risk factors for long COVID. And as soon as you appreciate that and say, this is not about blaming myself, this is where I'm at, then you can come back into control of things again. Welcome to the Strive Stronger podcast by Andrew May, where I am blessed to talk to world-class experts in a range of fields, including sport, entertainment, media, performing arts, military science, and a whole lot more. And we do two things, more than two things, but primarily, one is we look at the origin of that word strive from the French word estrave, which means to push through challenging times and come out the other side, and the word stronger, stronger physically, psychologically, emotionally, and stronger in our relationships, stronger finances, stronger in all parts of our lives. What a great segue into today's topic. We're going to be talking about well-being, immunity, and COVID. What a topic to talk about. We hear about it every time we turn on the TV and the radio, and I've got a world-class expert in with me today. Today's guest has literally worked by my side for the past 18 years in five different business iterations. We know that because I judge it by his eldest son's birthdays, and I saw your eldest son recently with a beard and driving, (laughs) so it's been a long time. Dr. Tom Buckley originally trained as a specialist intensive care RN before undertaking his doctoral studies, looking at the impact of stress on human physiology and cardiovascular risk factors. He is Associate Professor and a Director of Research Education in the Faculty of Medicine and Health at Sydney University. He's an adjunct professor at Southern Cross University. This is a really big list of achievements. He's also the Research Director with us at Stride Stronger. Dr. Tom is renowned as one of the world's leading experts on the impact of stress on human functioning. This is a really good intro to show why he is here today to talk about COVID. He's written more than 100 publications, research-based papers, that appear in peer-reviewed academic journals. He's also the co-author with me of MatchFit, which has now sold, do you believe, over 85,000 copies. Dr. Tom Buckley, welcome. And from my mates that I train with on a Monday morning, those copies are not all sitting in my parents' garage on the Gold Coast. <laughs> I certainly hope not, Andrew. Afternoon, lovely to be here. Now, we have done lots of interviews. We've done a few podcasts before under different banners, the NAB Business Fit podcast. We're always producing content. This is the first time we've done it under the Stride Stronger banner, and I thought the best way to launch with you is let's talk about a topic that you're doing a lot of researching on, writing on, and now speaking on, covid Yeah, it's dominating all our conversations these days, isn't it? Two years later and it's uh, still as fresh as day one, isn't it? I remember you saying when a large bank that we do work with got us in to do one of our, it was our original 30-day boost program, and you said, this is not going away. This is going to be here for a number of years. And people say, no, no, isn't it just going to be something that comes in and leaves fairly quick? It's not. Two years later, it is still occupying so much time, so much anxiety, so much stress. Yeah, and I think it was fairly clear quite quick that this was a pandemic, that this wasn't something that was isolated to an area. And viruses have a have a tendency to, to hang around. They have a tendency to come back in different forms or different variations. And I guess that's what we've seen over the last two years. Mm. And now that same client got you back into the bank a couple of weeks ago and asked you to come in and talk to people about COVID, long COVID, uh, vaccination, a lot of the fears. Evidence-based, not emotion-based. So you have been living, breathing, and you're doing a lot of talks for our clients. So we could talk about this for hours, and I know you do with some of your academic friends. I'm going to try and find a pitch between science, where you live, and interpreting so people listening to this understand what it means. Okay, So we'll try and dance <laughs> between the two. As a rough frame, Dr. Tom, five things I'd like to cover. Number one, where are we at with COVID? 
Uh, number two, the history of pandemics. I've heard you say the Spanish flu and swine flu didn't go away overnight. Three, what can we do to boost our immune system and overall well-being? Four, if you or a loved one gets COVID, what should you or they focus on? And also I want to look at this question that a lot of people ask us, can you get COVID twice? And number five, you and I are working. It's it's fascinating some of the work that we're doing now mm -hmm. with some high net worth individuals, some entrepreneurs, some very well-known executives on long COVID. So I want to talk about that as well. And just on that point is that, you know, while there's the science, science takes a while to be generated, to be peer reviewed, to be published. So um, we guess we're all living in this laboratory called the world at the moment, and uh, we all have our own personal experiences, and they're just as valuable as a peer review publication. So while we will talk about what evidence we have, I'm really, really conscious that, conscious that there's a lot of evidence we don't have. It's been generated, or um, we haven't got to, to researching every aspect of COVID yet. Um, mm. So as we get into this, I'll lean a lot on what we know from the science, but I'm also very, very aware of what we see with clients, what we see in family members, what we see in friends, because that's evidence as well. I think you find a nice balance on that. My understanding in academia, it's at least two, two and a half years until you can get a real grasp on research. Now, this has only been around for two years, so the research is not going to come out. And, and if we wait for the research to come out, we're going to be sitting idle for a long, long time. Yeah, actually, I, I can even correct you on that. I mean, two and a half years of creating evidence and translating it would, is rapid, and that's kind of what we've got now, maybe a bit quicker in some of the sort of emer emergency treatments of COVID, where we're, we're moving evidence into practice really, really quickly. The, the translation science actually shows in medicine and, and health, it generally takes about seven to seven and a half years before things get translated. If we were to change everything we do in our well-being, our health or in medicine, uh, if we were to change everything on the latest study, we, we'd be changing practice every other day. So we do have to take a measured approach to what's the volume of evidence, what, what's the level of evidence, um, how generalizable is that evidence to this population? Because a study conducted in 90-year-old roles uh, may not translate at all to 50-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And so we have tended to go back and look at weights of evidence, and that can take years. It could take 15 years to have five studies in a particular area. But what we're seeing with COVID is absolute rapid generation of science, and that comes with some special risks as well. But I think what we're seeing with COVID is that it comes with some tremendous rewards for, for us, both at a public level and, a, and at an individual hospital level as Most well. Most of our listeners, Dr. Tom, are hugely impatient. They're not going to wait for seven years. So let's go with number one. Where are we at with COVID, including the latest updates, advances? What's science showing us right now? Yeah, we, we know a lot about the virus itself. We know that it's an ugly fell under the microscope. We know it's got these spike proteins on it. And people see these pictures of this round, lipid-looking fat globule. So people have this vision of it. So we know what it looks like. And we know how where its affinity in the body is. Most people are infected through the respiratory system. We know it's attracted to a receptor in there called an ACE receptor, which is a, a receptor that's uh, associated with blood pressure regulation normally. Um, we know that some people have more and less of them, which helps us to help understand some of the risk factors. Um, we also know that there's another surface enzyme, some people call it surface proteins, actually an enzyme that's involved in how that that virus then gets into the body. Because, Andrea, listeners probably know that viruses are different to bacteria. Uh, bacteria will colonize outside the body, um, whereas viruses have to actually invade and get into the cells of the body this to is replicate. The, the Donald Trump missed. 
I think I promised I wasn't going to mention Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, there, there was a lot of misinformation about that, wasn't there, at the start? Oh, I, I think there's a lot of misinformation on COVID um, and a lot of uh, opinion or belief informed facts being thrown around rather than facts for the sake of it. But I think that that's okay because people generate their own experiences and they have their own knowledge, attitudes, beliefs around topics. Uh, we just got to work out what what's what's factual or what's likely to to be true for is it true for them or true for themselves so it's it's a messy area the what we absolutely know is the virus gets in gets generally gets in through the respiratory system and we generally know that it invades the cells and then it replicates within the cells and so most people have had respiratory symptoms at the start the good thing about that i mean I, that's a simplistic version of a very complex process but the advances in that understanding have been unbelievable. And I think a lot of the prevention and treatments come from understanding those pathways, understanding the exact proteins, enzymes, receptors involved. And now we actually understand how the virus spreads around the body. So the understanding is phenomenal. We've had vaccination developed in record time, um, but it takes a long time to develop test uh, pharmacological therapies to either prevent or treat. I'm going to ask you a question, and this is personal because it's based on a couple I know. The wife got COVID, the husband didn't. Yeah, look, it's, it, some of it is a mystery, but we do know a fair bit. I mean, we know risk factors. So we know, you know, they're not causative factors of disease, but they're risk factors. They're a higher risk of getting COVID. And, and interestingly, uh, uh, men are slightly more at risk than women. Uh, people with higher blood pressure, with prior cardiovascular disease, with prior lung diseases. Interestingly, not so much asthma, but some of the chronic diseases that people have are, are risk factors. Interestingly, uh, and particularly with your expertise, you know, cardiorespiratory fitness um, is a massive risk factor. Even things like doing six-minute walk tests actually predict your susceptibility to getting COVID. So I think, you know, we said very early on in this, um, you know, that never ever been a better time to be match fit, never been a better time to have good well-being and good health behaviours at the beginning of COVID. Um, that's still true today. Smoking is obviously a risk factor because smoking, you know, it, what smoking does to the lungs, you'll have more of those ACE receptors there. You're less, like, more, more susceptible to pathogens such as a virus. Um, actually invading into the lungs. So we know those risk factors. That helps in a way to understand why um, some people get it and some people are less likely to get so it. So will some people not get it? Because I've heard in the media, and I've been wanting to ask you this, is everyone going to get COVID or will some people not based on their immunity based on their DNA structure? Yeah, two things there. One, one, I think some people that have more genetic expression of those ACE receptors, some people seem to have more, perhaps have more or more activated ACE receptors, just like people, some people have high, higher blood pressure than others. Then some of these surface proteins they've discovered that are absolutely essential for this virus to actually get from outside the respiratory system into the respiratory cells, um, they, some people don't have uh, the genetic profile to have them switched on. And they're doing some, some, some studies where they're doing uh, what are called COVID exposure tests, where they expose individuals who don't have this genetic um, switch on for you know, layman's language of these genes. And they seem to be quite refractory to actually the COVID um, actually replicating and invading the cells in the body. So, so that would help to explain, because like you, I know lots of families where the whole family has it, except one individual. 
Yeah. Mm. And so some of the risk factors help, um, but I actually think there's probably some more to the genetics there as well. Well, we, I don't just think it from our reading of the literature, it appears there is. Yeah. I'm going to say something really intelligent. This may not have happened Re- ever Really? Before. <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening. You're the doctor. You're not meant to make the jokes. <laughs> COVID is not a respiratory virus. It's a whole body virus that attacks the endothelium. Yeah, look, that's uh, that's uh, no, very, very true. It is intelligent, right? Because you said that to a patient the other day. So. <laughs> you were listening. But, um, but it was interesting because this patient has seen a respiratory expert and a lot of people who, and we'll get to long COVID as well, uh, are going and seeing part specialist, respiratory specialist, and are still finding that they're not treating the fatigue they've got or the problems or the challenges they've got. But your view on that was was really rounded and quite different to a lot of other approaches I've heard. So my view on that has come from speaking to a lot of those respiratory specialists, haematology specialists, cardiac specialists, a lot that I work very closely with. What they will say to me is that, you know, when you have a respiratory infection, it's a respiratory disorder and the symptoms you get are originating from that respiratory infection. So oxygenation, breathlessness, maybe signals to the brain to raise your temperature to kill off, try and kill off pathogens. And if that temperature or if that infection spread into the blood, then you'll have blood pressure issues and, you know, from a sort of sepsis type scenario. So it's, it's a respiratory disorder and everything else systemically is in response to that. When they're dealing with patients who are really ill with COVID, it's actually a whole body disorder. It's not just, it may have started in a respiratory system, but actually COVID has the potential to um, attack all the organs in the body. And that makes a lot of sense because those receptors responsible are actually spread all around the body. And and the organs they're most prevalent in, of course, are the respiratory system, the gastrointestinal system. So a lot of patients get gastric problems and tummy problems. They're in the nose and the the mouth and the tongue. So people often have issues with sense of smell and taste. A lot of people have had that they've lost their smell they can't taste food yeah so so if the virus is interacting with those organs um, then the function of those organs is very highly likely to be to be affected and that's a seems to be a very common symptom and then of course uh, longer term people then tend to have symptoms that often go beyond the acute infection and and, and we generally call that long COVID. Mm. vaccination my understanding there's three types. We're hearing a lot now, you know, double vaccinated, triple vaccinated. And, and I'll just underscore that we're talking about this based on science, not emotion. I uh, know we've had the chat in my family, your family, friends, colleagues. There's so many views on this. And I think whenever somebody starts with, I think I feel that, no, 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 let's go to the doctors, let's go to the scientists. So can you give me a scientific update on vaccination? Yeah, and before I do that, just just to say that, you know, People do develop opinions about what they feel is acceptable to put into their own bodies, and I really, really respect that. So, I'm sure a lot of people will be listening going, what have I had? AstraZeneca, Pfizer have been the big ones that our Australian audience yeah. have taken. So, so there's three main main vaccine types here in Australia. And there's some more overseas, but there's three, three main. So most people are familiar with AstraZeneca. That was one of the, the first ones here in Australia. So that's a, what's called a viral vector vaccine. Um, and that's where a, a strand of mRNA is encapsulated within a, a, a different virus, a dead virus. And then that's how we stimulate the immune system to, to develop recognition of what COVID might look like. 
The second type is a uh, visor. Most people are familiar with visor, and um, and that one's a mRNA vaccine, uh, strand of mRNA encapsulated in um, a sort of a fat globule for all the world, um, and then that stimulates the body to produce these spike proteins, and then the body recognizes them, develops an immune response, and then it's pre prepared should it get it again. And then the third time are protein-based, which is the spike proteins or uh, a form of a spike protein or spike protein replica. Um, then that then the body is exposed to, and then the body develops an immune response to. I think it's really important that we don't gloss over the science on this. So it's really good to give people an understanding and why we've got the different vaccines, how this has evolved, mm. and how we're going to get out of this. So let's get to point number two, history of pandemics. Can we say when we think this is going to be a memory? No. I think it'll become a memory, uh, less of a memory when less people um, get acutely ill from it and when the media stop recycling every story they can on it. Yeah. Um, the reality is that viruses, if you look at the history of pandemics, um, several viruses hang around and they often pop their head up in different forms over time. You know, swine flu, Spanish flu, um, you know, they're, they're the same virus. The pessimist in me or the realistic scientist in me thinks we're going to be living with COVID a long, long time. The history of viruses... What's a long, long time? Years and years, yeah. And we, we live with colds and flus all the time. And I think we will get to a stage where we're, coronavirus is in the same category. I remember, the, the common cold is a corona is. is Coronavirus. Is it because yeah. each iteration gets weaker and weaker and weaker, so eventually it weans itself out from one of the other That's what's happened historically with viruses, is that they weaken. As they, the more times they replicate and the more times they evolve, they tend to weaken. My observation is that seems to be true as well here with COVID. Um, you know, the current wave, Omicron wave, you know, it's it's more transmittable. And right now we're moving into a phase where we've got another variant of that that seems to be spiking numbers again. Um, but we don't see massive jumps in hospital numbers. We certainly see patients hospitalized, um, as we do with the flu and other respiratory um, disorders every year. But we're not seeing massive intensive care numbers. Now, for the number of people who actually are positive with COVID, and the official numbers are probably only a small percentage of the actual numbers. We're not seeing this massive, massive rise in hospitalizations like we saw. You, you remember New York, you remember mm. India. Um, I remember London. Like mm, London, Fields yeah. where I've run and yeah. fields where you used to run when you were living in London as well were like turned into a military side yeah. uh, with yeah. hospital beds. Yeah, and, and the same in the US. I've got colleagues in the US who sent me photographs and their car park is a morgue, you know. Um, that, they were horrific times. That's happening to small degrees in places, so we shouldn't trivialise it. But it's not not at the same degree as what it was in the earlier versions of the of the virus. And the panic has somewhat subsided, hasn't it? Like it was two years ago, eighteen months ago, where we thought everyone was going to end up with a shocking case of COVID, multiple people in hospital, and not downplaying it. But what you and I and what our team at Strive Stronger are saying a lot is focus on what you can control. Now, if you get COVID, uh, you've got to deal with that. And we're going to talk about what people yep. can do. But we've got to live with this. Life will go on. You know, focus on what yep. you can do to boost your immune system. Focus on your well-being. Focus on your relationships. Get time in nature. Exercise. Now, depending on where you are, if you've got COVID, you're going to, to say dial it down. But don't stop living is really what I'm saying. I 100% say that. I mean, you should always get busy living and not dying. You know, And I think uh, that there has to be our philosophy here because we've been two years, we're two 
two years waiting for this to go away, it ain't going away. There'll be some version of it around probably indefinitely. So we do have to get busy living. We have to get busy living our best lives. And what that means for different people is different things. I mean, for 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 us here at Strive Stronger, it's about being being as healthy as we can be. It's about enhancing our well-being. And for me, it's about minimizing the risk. Because the one thing I do take exception to is people saying is prescribing COVID. And I don't know if you know what I mean by prescribing mm-hmm. COVID, but um, you know, I see this among my own family overseas. So one member gets it and they say, oh, we purposely all just didn't bother. We just said, we'll get it and get it over with. The problem is that for some people, it will be a mild symptom. And for other people, it could be quite severe illness. And and we know what the risk factors are, but we can't predict exactly who's going to really, really get sick. And for other people, the symptoms might never go away. So I think it's dangerous to take this philosophy of, oh, we're all getting it. Because as soon as we accept that, mm. it will spread. And the problem with spreading around the population is that if we just allow it to do that, we take for granted it's going to get weaker but there'll be carnage on the journey. But we don't always know if this virus will get weaker. And so, you know, if we let it run rampant, yeah, immunologists say it's a low risk, but there's a potential for what kind of variant you might end up with. When COVID first came into our lives two years ago, it was get vaccinated, wear masks. Hardly anyone said, be healthy, look after your immune system. Did we miss a major opportunity there, did the government miss a major opportunity to to promote health and well-being rather than just disease management or, or virus management? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we certainly said those things and um, we certainly preached that and lived that because we were very acutely aware that a, a healthy immune system is important to defend your body from COVID and to recover from COVID if you get it. And of course, a healthy immune system lives in a healthy body. So a highly functioning immune system lives in a healthy body. So we were really, really aware of that. I think, you know, when you have uh, go back to when I worked in emergency department one time, you know, if somebody comes in and they're bleeding, um, that's not the time to do, you know, let's, 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 Look at why your cholesterol is up. Let's have a chat about what your heart rate is. That's a time to actually stop the bleeding. And so if you look at it from early on in the COVID, you know, everything was about preventing people getting the infection. Yeah, everything was about how do we manage in the health system because the health system has had tremendous strain and tremendous carnage among individuals in there, the effect it's had on health workers, you know. So this is what the, the focus was is what can the health system cope? Do we have do we have enough medicines? Do we have enough oxygen? There was one point, do we even have enough oxygen? Um, there was a point where we did not have enough masks for the health professionals. So, so it was in emergency thinking. It was like, stop the bleeding. It was like, try and let's get through this. I think I am a little disappointed that now that we have got on tr- control of that, I mean, there are people out there who would say we're not fully in control. But I think as a population, we are kind of in control now, two years later. Um, So I think it is disappointing that we don't have that public narrative as much as we should. And you know, I asked that question totally biased (laughs) as a exercise, I was going to say former, but I still put on my exercise physiologist Mm -hmm. hat. But I I just couldn't help but think, Tom, every time I read something, heard something, watched something, why isn't the government saying, if you are overweight, 
if you smoke, if you have diabetes or metabolic syndrome, if you've got all these risk factors, you know, really look after those as much as you're looking after wearing masks, washing your hands and everything else. I just And do you know the stats? So if someone is overweight, if they do have metabolic syndrome or they're pre-diabetic or they've got chronic inflammation, what, what are the stats around that? What's the increased likelihood they end up in ICU? What's the increased likelihood they end up with a bad bad strain of COVID. It ranges anywhere from twofold to sometimes 15-fold increased risk, uh, relative risk. So human behaviours are very complex. I went to uni to do a master's to try and work out how simple or how simply can I teach behaviour change. Yeah. And I said to you after three years, oh my God, this is so bloody yep. complicated. Hundreds of models, emotions, feelings, thoughts, behaviours, grandmothers, cultural beliefs, religions. Yeah, it's uh, everything we teach together and everything you do in your world, everything I do in my world of sport, your world of medicine and study. Behaviour change is so complex. It's complex um, because what happens is that people start putting value judgments on others and saying, well, you're overweight, so good enough for you for getting COVID. You know, so you run the risk of creating that kind of narrative. You also run the risk for individuals of falling into the self-blame game. And that's very, very toxic and associated with really bad outcomes. We see that in heart disease where uh, people will blame themselves for getting the heart disease. You know, oh, I shouldn't have done this and I shouldn't have done that and I should have done that. And, I should, yeah. and that self-blame is actually very, very toxic. And it doesn't really help with recovery. So there's two sides to the public messaging. One is, yes, we should focus on our well-being, but we don't. We shouldn't really need COVID for that. Mm. I mean, all our, how long we live, how well we live, they're all determined by our health and well-being. Well, you and I are working on our next book out sometime in the next few years called PQ, Performance Intelligence. Mm. And part of that is we're looking at how do people manage physical, psychological and emotional state? How do they influence others? But a big thing, and, and you've jumped on my bandwagon, because when I first said to you, I want to live to 130, I think you thought I was stuck, crazy, mad, but maybe the science has caught up with my optimism. But we can see, can't we, that if people do the right things, especially earlier, yeah. you've got to tap into this stuff, not when you're 70 or 80, but in your 40s and 50s, and then you have a long, long go running at this, a lot of us will get to 100 plus. I hope so. I mean, I, I think our kids are more likely to get there um, in better shape than we are. We're, we're likely to push ourselves there and drag the bodies there in some state or other. I think <laughs> our kids are more likely to bounce to there, uh, particularly if they, um, the sort of trend we see with young individuals are very interested in their health. You know, my eight-year-old and my 17-year-old are way more health literate than I ever was at that age, you know. But, but we do fall into patterns of behavior that that we don't think about. And uh, you know, sometimes they're convenient, sometimes they're just the environment, sometimes they're, they're what we can afford to do. Um, so I think, I think we've got to be very careful. I think we need a narrative that we do have control of our well-being. We do have ability to reduce our risk here of viruses, not just COVID, but the flu and other viruses. Um, we do have that, but we've always had that. We have, we have the ability to reduce our risk of heart disease, and yet two out of three men will develop heart disease. I mean, there's genetic predispositions as well. So, you know, we can control the environment and our behaviours, um, and then even doing that, there will be people who get really, really sick. I think, yes, it's, it's, I am disappointed we're not having the discussion more, but we don't have it anyway. If we did, we wouldn't be advertising half the processed foods on television. The government would have banned that years ago. It, it's a tricky we area. We wouldn't be filling our kids full of sugar either. Let's say I come and see you in our human performance lab because I want to optimise my wellbeing, performance, productivity, 
and my immune system. So for people listening, can you give them like four, five, six things, vitamins, minerals, tactics, strategies to boost well-being? Now, I'll timestamp this. In Australia, we are heading into the colder months. Yeah. We have a lot of people listening to this in the Northern Hemisphere as well. Um, so heading to winter, you probably want to up this, but what, what would you tell people to do just generically to boost well-being and immunity? So just generally, just leave COVID aside at the moment. Generally, I mean, I think there, you know, we often think that I think anyway about 60 to 70% of it is diet. I, I think, you know, we, we often heard the saying, and you're an elite, come from an elite running background, you can't outrun a bad diet. Uh, we saw the, the London Olympics, that phenomenally high percentage of the athletes there actually had blood sugars in the pre-diabetic range, and they were elite Olympians. And yeah. friends of yours and mine, when you were coming through Ireland running track and I was in Australia, an, an amount, like a large amount of people that I've trained with have heart disease. Yeah. And yeah. they were great athletes, but they ate crap. Yeah. So multiple factors in there with, with stress and, um, and overtraining syndrome. But, but I think 60 to 70 percent of his diet, if you don't get that foundation right, um, then um, what other things help? Absolutely help. I think you've got to get that foundation right. Um, that's highly individual. I mean, there's multiple factors as to what's the right diet for a person, which is why all diets, one diet doesn't work for everybody. Um, there was a, I remember going to a, a lecture at, at uh, Sydney Medical School once when I was studying public health and uh, absolute expert in this area said, we should take the label off of all diets and just call them diet. I'm putting you on a diet, pick one out of, out of the, the hash and say, this is a diet for you and everybody will have results for a little while while they do it. Um, because just by becoming conscious around what we're eating, about altering what we're eating, we tend to get results. What's right for you? What's right for me? I mean, you and I know this because we've done some genetic testing and we know that, you know, I'm a little less carb tolerant than you and I need higher omega-3 fatty acids, so I need a more higher natural fat diet than you. So, so we, we have to, when I work with clients, I have to look at the individual. But if I'm going to give a, if I'm going to give a broad guideline, I'm going to say there's a few areas you need to look at. There's what you're eating, and that should be as natural as possible. There's how you cook it, and that should be as slow as possible. Yeah. Um, and then there's, within that, there's what your metabolic requirements are. So if you're you know, running 20 kilometers a day, you're going to need more macronutrients, macro calories. You need more calories than somebody who's walking 5,000 steps a day. So that's how much you should eat. So you've got to look at it that way. But I think as a general rule, if you can just avoid the processed foods, particularly the ultra-processed foods, that's foods with more than four ingredients, you're probably adding seven, eight years to your life. We were in a workshop recently, one of our executive performance programs, and someone said, when reading food labels, what should I look at? And you said, nothing. <laughs> Buy foods without food labels. I think it's really simple, right? Eat stuff as natural as possible. That comes from nature. Lots of vegetables, like, you know, stack your plate with vegetables yeah. uh, and also alcohol, alcohol in moderation. So we've got nutrition covered and yep. we could do a whole talk on nutrition separately. What else? So mobility. We are designed to be mobile. We, a lot of us have become sedentary. Yeah, but I'm busy, mate. Like I'm working from home and I go from the bedroom to the kitchen to the makeshift office and I've got kids and I just don't have time to exercise. I can't do it. Yeah, your physiology doesn't care. Oh, well, yeah, you don't understand. Yeah, our physiology doesn't understand. <laughs> well, I do understand. I'm yeah. here in my I know you do. Right yeah, now. I know. 
we evolved to be mobile. We evolved to be running around hunters and gatherers. Um, we, we didn't have Jimmy Brings alcohol. We didn't have 24-hour fitness. You know, you used yeah. to chop some wood and then you'd yeah. bake some food and then you'd go down to the well. Like, we just become so lazy. Yeah, and we've also fallen into... Um, I, I, we become lazy, but but society is structured in a way that doesn't require us to be that mobile. We're able to drive everywhere. We're able to work at computers, and, and even a lot of factories now are all automated. This automated that. So we've evolved there. So we, we do have to now focus on purposeful exercise more. Um, doesn't have to be go to the gym and look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. It does have to be mobility. We do need to get the body moving and we do need to challenge the body in different ways, both resistance, you know, forced to work on our strength, uh, for distance, forced to, to, to be able to go for long periods and, and also be able to go fast for short periods. We need to challenge the body. When you take the heart rate up, we need to let it come down. The value of taking it up is training it to come down. And what a great link. I'm going to throw in one because I know you have this in your list. It'll be recovery. Well, that's uh, the third restoration, one. Restoration, sleep. And we're talking a lot about micro recovery now as well in the, in yeah. the day, the 20 to 30 second or 90 second little mini breaks. Athletes build this in, but corporate workers, especially working remote when we're on Zoom meetings or team meetings all day, have been proven to be twice as cognitively draining. People listening to this don't need the research. They've been practicing this for two years and they're totally fatigued and over working behind screens. Yeah, we need to normalize recovery. We need to look at recovery in two or three different ways. One, we need to um, see it as as important as eating food um, in our day. We need to build it in across the day and we need to plan for it at night time. And that's our big failure as a society, as a Western society, is that we accidentally fall asleep or we fall asleep fatigued. We need to we need to plan for recovery. We need to see that as as important as the nutrition you put in, uh, because the best nutrition in the world with poor sleep, um, you're going to be having anti-inflammatory food and you're going to be creating inflammation from poor sleep. So we, we've got to prioritize it. It's not easy though, and uh, you know we kind of see recovery. You and I often laugh about this. We see recovery as sitting on the lounge with a remote control, a beer or a bottle of wine and the television in front. That's our vision of recovery, yeah? Um, that's not all recovery. That's actually stressing the body up. Well, um, from sport, we accelerate recovery and, and, and you bounce back quicker physically and psychologically. You play more, you have your top team on the field, you win more games, everyone's happy, you keep your mm. job. So in sport, it's not even an argument. We, we recover first, train second. Yeah, yeah, and that's the that's the sort of philosophical shift we need to make, where we 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 work and we work hard, and then we try to recover at night. And I say try because we know, we know from the work we do in the lab that majority of people don't recover adequately. We actually need to switch that around. We need to say, right, I'm going to get my recovery done, and, and I'm going to do it really, really well. And when I've done that, now I can work hard, play hard, play my sport hard, and then I go back into recovery. So recovery should come first. Mm. Athletes know that because you're not going to perform at the Olympics. I mean, there's a great examples at the London Olympics of athletes who really struggled with their circadian um, rhythms when they moved to London. They really struggled with the stress of expectations. Um, they resorted to prescription medicines to be able to sleep. Right? That's not judgmental. 
I don't know how you would cope in that cold room, um, but they had to do things. But they actually weren't, they, the eyes were going to sleep, but they weren't sleeping. And we know that with a lot of sleeping meds. And they underperformed. I mean, you, how in those stressful scenarios, recovery is really challenging and you've got to optimize everything with recovery. But for our day-to-day -day lives, you know, if we're not recovering, we're just building this basket of debt the whole way from week to week to week, and then we break down. And, and Wizard, can you make a note in our show notes? We'll put a link to the blog we just did on the ARP, another acronym, Annual Recovery Plan. And again, borrowing from sport, you map out, it's called periodization. You have an off-season, play hard. When are you rotating players? When are you rotating yourself? When do you have rest weeks? We just do it in sport, right? Mm. And we've adapted that to the corporate world. So we've got nutrition, mobility, normalizing recovery. What else can people do? Well, I think the big one is is having fun. Um, you know, I think we kind of forget to have fun. Egad, can I rewind two and a half years ago, Dr. Tom Buckley, when we looked at six levers for match fit, move, <laughs> I knew fuel, you were go there. recharge, think, connect, and, and play. play? I didn't realise this was in your notes today. And, and what did you say to me when I said, I think play is going to be in the book as one of the six key levers? What yeah, did you really think? Uh, I probably won't say what I was thinking, but I did. Well, I I'll was, do it in your accent. What the fuck? <laughs> well, well, I was very much thinking, you know, play, really? Really? Like, you know, is there a science to play? You know, because the book was so scientifically based. Yeah, I was wrong. Hello, Stuart um, Brown. But, but I, in my in my defense, I was aware of a couple of things here. I just hadn't associated with play. One, one um, socializing or the opposite to loneliness, you know, feeling connected, feeling part of society, families, um, feeling wanted, are phenomenally important to our well-being. So, so in my defense, I knew that. Mm. I just hadn't seen pay, play as the sort of currency of that. No, I'm being provocative and stirring you, which I love doing. But, but play, I, I think it's seen as, oh, yeah, just go play. But we didn't realize the seriousness of yeah. going and playing yeah. to yeah. detach psychologically, to have fun, that childlike predisposition to play. And we talk about this, you know, what do your kids do? They watch play school, they mm. have play dates, play dough, play time and play lunch. And what have we done the last two years? Teams meetings or Zoom, full yeah. stop. That's it. That's where, where it ends. And, and one of uh, the psychologists you and I have an intellectual crush on is Stuart Brown who set up the National Institute of Play in his 80s. So a psychologist who'd yeah. been studying very serious frameworks and schema and Freud and looking at you know, self-efficacy, Albert yeah. Benjamin, all the stuff I get excited about, set up an institute of play at 80 because he realised we are missing something. Well, he did because he was nearly 80. And, and what we find with older individuals in society is that they go back to play and play becomes a place of joy, connection, shared goals, shared vision, um, socialization, all the things that keep us healthy into old age, all the things associated with, with living longer, living healthier. So play, play. You, you were very right to see play there as the central part of that. An important part of play, of course, is laughter. I mean, there, there's the socialization and there's the, you know, um, engaging something you get joy from. Um, but also laughter is so good for the body. I mean, if you, you go to um, lots of hospitals now, particularly children's hospitals, they'll have laughter sessions. They'll have, the, you know, Dr. Clown or somebody like that coming in and uplifting the kids. And, and it's not just about keeping them entertained. It actually speeds up their recovery. Well, you've given me permission now when I say really stupid jokes in our staff meetings. I just look at Angela and say, it's good for your immunity. And she said, yes, Annie, but it has to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? 
Well, we know how toxic loneliness is. Mm. And so I think we absolutely have to work on our relationships. And so, um, and that can be fundamental to everything that I just spoke about. It can be fundamental to how you eat. If you're really, really trying to have a healthy diet, but your partner or wherever you live with is the opposite, you could be swimming uphill. And we see this with clients all the time. One of the first things I'll say to them is, is your wife on board? Is your husband on board? And one of the first things I say now, and what we've learned collectively, is how are your relationships with your partner, male, female, significant other, significant others? I had a recent conversation, someone who's in a... Uh, polyamorous relationship. I haven't told you about that one. That was interesting. Mm. Yeah, I had to really maintain my <laughs> professionalism and not ask the questions I wanted to ask. Um, but he's really happy. He's connected. Yeah. Um, so if and why do we ask this? It has massive implications on your immune system if you're in yeah, an unhealthy, absolutely. toxic relationship. Yeah, because because stress. You know, there's a few things. If you want to put your immune system to sleep, then pour in a load of stress and pour in a whole load of sugar and alcohol on top of it. And you really will put the immune system to sleep. So, you know, if you really want to keep that immune system functioning and functioning well, um, then you've got to keep your stress hormones down. And you've got to keep sugar away because sugar, sugar depresses the parasympathetic recovery system. Now, what level of sugar does that in individuals varies because some people have really good metabolism to metabolize sugar and clear it, and other people their pancreas struggles to clear it. So you, sometimes we do have to work out what level of sugar, but as a, a general population, we, we know that we take on board way too much sugar. Um, so pour in a load of sugar, pour in a whole load of stress, dampen down your recovery and have toxic relationships and your immune system will be in the floor. Mm. And it's got a lot to do with today's topic about well-being and immunity. So let's summarize. Nutrition, eating foods as natural as possible and not reading food labels because you should have less food labels. Number two was mobility and movement. Number three is to normalize recovery. One of my favorite topics. Number four is play and laughter. Five is strength and relationships. Can I ask as well about supplementation? What vitamins and minerals should people be taking to give them that extra boost? Uh, none at all. Very quick response, wasn't it? <laughs> um, I, I say that just to be contrary. I think there's no point in putting in vitamins and supplements until you've got all of those six sorted out because what you're trying to do is plug holes. Um, and you need to know what holes to plug with supplements. So supplements have an absolute role to place in optimizing our well-being, optimizing our fun mental and physical functioning, in optimizing our immunity. Um, but it, there is no supplement you just give everybody. Um, you, you've got to look at an individual level. And so I, yeah, I, I can sp you can throw them all out and I can talk about them. Um, the, the reality is that if we got the diet right, then we wouldn't need any supplements. Mm. But, but I say that in a contrary. The reality is that in our modern living, the way we live, where food is grown, harvested, the way food is generated, the way we cook it, it's incredibly hard to get all the nutrients that would completely optimize the human body. So that's why we do look to supplements. But we've got to be careful because just because um, a food source, take fish oil. Yeah, uh, I remember when fish oil, you go to all the cardiology conferences and Fish oil has been shown, and, and original research came from the Eskimo populations, and, and suddenly everybody threw fish oil in on top of their meals. Yeah, But what were they eating? They were eating really rubbish processed meat. They were having chips, they were having burgers, and they're shoving fish oil in. Well, 
Let's fast forward now 20 years and fish oil isn't the Ameri the miracle or the miracle heart saver that we thought it was. Now, perhaps if we went over here and ate wild fish a lot more um, and got more fish oil from wild fish, then we would see a very different um, outcome from fish oil. So what I always want to ask people with regards to supplements is, um, are you using it are you using it as an addition to changing nothing or are you using it to actually uh, supplement what you're doing? And so, um, you know, you'd be better off eating the fish. And likewise, you'd be better off eating the, the colored vegetables to get your, your micronutrients. But in reality, there are times where you need a bit more of this or you're trying to optimize your health or your well-being, your longevity. And then there are supplements that have been shown to be effective. But if you don't have the basic nutrition right and you don't have the mobility going and you're um, trying to counteract stress with supplements, then supplements probably not doing mm. anything. And we'll do a separate podcast. In fact, we said we're going to in another month or two on supplements and how we get people to that fountain of yeah, youth. But that's yeah, a different conversation yeah. around wellbeing and COVID. And COVID. Well, I, I'm sorry, sorry, Andrew, I, I just want to make a point to listeners is that I'm not saying supplements don't have a use. They do. Um, we use them all the time in our lab. We use them with clients, myself, um, you know, but there's reasons. Mm. It's not I take a multivitamin off the supermarket shelf um, because that's just probably giving you expensive urine. Unless it's targeted at a specific deficiency or a specific um, uh, sort of therapeutic effect you're looking for. Yeah, if I can summarise that, target those basic building blocks, proper nutrition, food in its most natural form, mobility and movement, normalise recovery, play, strengthen relationships. I think, and again, I'm biased, but I think everyone on their personal board, yeah, you've got a doctor, a lawyer, you have a dentist you see periodically, your accountant, you should have someone who advises you in this stuff. And we have a lot of people we work yeah. with in that area. This is not a plug. This is just to say to people on your personal board, have someone who helps you yeah. regularly with your physical well-being and your fitness, yeah. unless you're qualified in this area. And, and I'm the same. I go and see people like you on my nutrition to make sure that I'm topping stuff up as well because yeah. it's, it changes, right? Yeah. Uh, kids, relationships, travel, yep. life, we're in a constant state of flux. Uh, absolutely. And I think if you're, for listeners, if you're really interested in supplementation, and we all should be, um, then then do it with somebody who's qualified to advise you. And I'll just give you one classic example on that. People who pour in vitamin D, um, you know, they often pour in too much and then they start moving, calcium starts moving into weird places in the body. And so you don't want to be taking so much vitamin D that your calcium's pouring into coronary arteries and you have a whole load of problems down the road. You, you need to know... Do you need it? If you do, how much? And what else should be taking with it? Or where's the threshold before it becomes harmful? Because any supplement taken too much can be really harmful. Mm. Number four in my frame, Dr. Tom, was if you do get COVID, what should you focus on? I'm thinking a lot of it we've just discussed. We have. There's probably a few specifics that might be helpful. Uh, I'll tell you a tiny little story. When my brother got COVID in Ireland, he got this text message. He'll be listening to this. He'll be laughing. He got this text messaging saying he'd been positive and that he needed to isolate for a week. And it then said, you need to stay in your room. <laughs> it's like, so you've been very specific about staying in his room in the text message from the government. And I remember looking at that going, but what if you lived in a house on his own? Which room? Mm. <laughs> so, so there are things we do need to do for protecting others, such as isolating ourselves. But we've also got to think about what's good for us. 
And of course, staying in a dark room is not good for you. You know, if you can be without contacting others, you can get some sunshine, you can get some sunlight, remembering that these all these UV rays and uh, higher temperature and sunlight are all really good for your immune system and help you to recover. Um, the big thing we need to do is to manage acute symptoms as a first point. So we need to look after our health as normal. If you're on medicines, if you... Um, uh, if you're on medicines, don't have medication vacations, you know, if you've got symptoms that are beyond what you would normally have with a cold or a mild flu, then get in contact with your doctor or your healthcare provider and make sure that um, you're managing symptoms. Because there can often be a threshold where symptoms go from a sniffle and a cough and a sniff and a runny nose to I've got chest pain or I've got palpitations or I'm really now struggling to breathe. Um, and, we need to act on them. We need to get advice. And the great thing here in Australia is we can phone our GPs. We can get that advice mm -hmm. and get advice on whether or not we need any medicines or whether we actually need to go to hospital. So, that, so that's our first stage. Then the second stage is really looking after ourselves. Um, we need, you know, people tend, I've, I know people have had COVID and they're working frantic at home. Yeah. I think we need to give ourselves permission. I've got COVID. The things I do now are hopefully going to help me to get over this quicker and not have prolonged symptoms. So Which is so important with what we're seeing now because some of the people we are working with on long COVID rushed it and thought they'll just you know get through this. It takes a couple of days and I'll bounce back. That is such an important point. Yeah, I think a lot of the discussions I'm having with people now um, are very different to two years ago where it was all really around how do I manage myself if I got COVID. Now it's very much how do I maximise my recovery out of COVID. And the first thing we've got to do is go slow. If your body wants to sleep, sleep. Um, if your body wants to uh, walk around, walk around. So be really tuned in and, you know, purposeful exercise. We need to pack away when you have symptoms or in the early phase of COVID, even if you go negative on your, on your test and you can move around a bit because you're not infectious. We need to move from exercise to mobility. We need to eat. Really, we want to enhance the liver function. So we need to eat to have a really clean liver. And so if you look at processed foods, sugar, additives, alcohol, we need to get rid of all that. We need to eat a really clean diet because the liver is so involved in the immune system. And we also need to get a lot of those inflammatory mediators and cytokines out of the body because they're the ones that potentially giving people the prolonged symptoms. Mm -hmm. So we just got to clean things up, slow down, mm -hmm. clean things up, mobilize, not exercise. Um, and just really be conscious that I need to invest time now. The biggest thing not to do is to rush back to work because I've got to catch up on four days of work. And that's when you start pushing the stress in. As soon as you do that, you put the immune system to sleep. The other question I've got on this, Tom, is can you get COVID twice? And all the media is showing yes. I think there's people in Japan have reported three or four times. But can you get a different variation? So could I have Omicron at the same time as Delta? That's a great question. It's one that um, is of great concern is that you would get both at the same time. Um, and particularly when you have two variants floating around the population. We've tended to have one variant dominant. Um, we don't always know and we probably won't know right now because um, people are not always having PCR tests done. So they won't know what variant they have. Is it possible to have two at the same time? Um, I don't know of cases of personally, um, but I guess theoretically it is possible. Um, could you have Delta and then get Omicron and you know, they're all labeled after the Greek al alphabet, so who knows what next one will be of concern. 
yeah, we, we do know of people who've had positive across the different waves. So yeah, it is possible. We do know that for about six months, people do have a degree of natural immunity after having it. But we know after about six months, that tends to wane down again, which is why you can get reinfected. So it is a false security to say, well, I've had COVID, so I'm immune. Mm. Um, you are less likely to get COVID in that first six months, maybe the first four months more so. But after six months, then you, your immunity starts to wane. Good link, immunity waning. Let's talk about long COVID. We've danced mm. in and around and we've purposely held back. I'm going to quote an article, recent article in The Australian that also references an article in the Financial Times. The subheading is fatigue and brain fog. According to the Office for National Statistics in the UK, 1.5 million people, or about 2.2% of the population, had long COVID symptoms over the new year, many times the number who have died. The symptoms include fatigue, shortness of breath, loss of taste and smell, and difficulty concentrating, often termed brain fog, but also palpitations and nausea. Later in the article, it says, the size of the economic hit in the UK is nearly impossible to forecast. According to economist Julian Jessup, if, if 100,000 people were unable to work due to long COVID, that would be 0.4% of the workforce. A total hit of 0.4% of GDP would cost the UK economy over $18 billion a year. So probably very similar to uh, what happens each season with the flu. Um, you know, when, when we have people out of the workforce because they're not able to function, the, the risk here with long COVID, of course, is that it isn't one or two weeks. For some people, it can be seven, nine months, a year, and maybe for some unfortunate people, maybe they may be indefinite. So, so I'll back the truck up first, long COVID, because the World Health Organization has been saying it's four or five weeks. This article quotes long COVID with a number of experts who have a clinic in the UK that it now takes 15 weeks to get into, which is causing stress, anxiety, and a whole lot of other psychological symptoms. So with long COVID, it's not just the physiological, it's the psychological. What do you term long COVID? Yeah, I, I think time time is useful and, and the different studies have measured at four weeks, five weeks, 12 weeks, five months, seven months. Um, and you see slightly different variation in the symptoms. I mean, some symptoms just seem to go on. What, what differentiated from acute COVID is that the symptoms are no longer directly associated with the infection. It's no longer breathlessness for, or a fever. The immune system has dealt with the infection, but we get these prolonged symptoms. So that's how we're defining long COVID. The most prominent one tends to be fatigue or people talk about brain fog. But, but about 70% of people who report long COVID also report high levels of anxiety or mood swings or difficulty concentrating. It really is a, a group of symptoms that very closely mirror chronic fatigue. Well, that's the only thing in our research when we dug in that some of the treatment is similar to some of the treatment for chronic fatigue. But like chronic fatigue... There's so many other variables. Right? It's not cut and, and dried. If this is exactly what you do. It's not like that. No, it's not. And I think we also have to appreciate that we don't fully understand chronic fatigue either. Um, and it's often a lot of trial and error in treatments. And, uh, and we don't always manage to resolve chronic fatigue in individuals. Often people learn to live with it and manage to stay functioning and know when not to push, etc. Mm. So 
We probably don't know enough about long COVID. What we do know is over time, the symptoms decrease in volume in, in the population. So if 40% of the population have fatigue at five months, it's down to 20% at, say, 12 months. You know, so we're beginning to understand that for most people, these things are resolving. Yeah, But we don't know at three years, five years, at what percentage of them. I'm also acutely aware that if you study any population, you'll get a percentage of the population who report fatigue and some of these symptoms too. So they tend to try and control for that in the studies by determining that these symptoms were not there pre-COVID. Um, so it is real. It is real. Mm -hmm. I think personally from, and I think you've observed this too, a lot of the people I'm working with or around me in other circles that have prolonged symptoms called long COVID are often very busy, high-flying, middle-aged individuals. Um, and the research is showing that too. And they're individuals that we are working with and a, a couple come to mind. Similar to when I first started working with people with chronic fatigue, Tom, many years ago, and you say to someone, so what's the hardest thing about chronic fatigue? There's obviously the fatigue and not being able to train and going to functions and wanting to go to bed, but it's the psychology around that as well, yeah, is yeah. the, the self-worth, the lack of confidence. Yeah. Then that leads to a reduced self-efficacy, and, and then it can really spiral. Long-term, you can have anxiety, and, and we haven't seen this in our clients, but I'm reading about this, is depression. So you've got some, someone who's... You know, been at the top of their game mm. and then they're, they're trying to to approach the treatment on this like they've done with everything else like when i've worked with some chronic fatigue people and it it, it it often goes away when you do a multifaceted approach like we do but when you can't put your finger on it and you're used to being in control that that especially that demographic you talk about mate that does your head in yeah i, I think perceptions of control are, are really really important here if you the type of individuals I've seen, with, with, not all, but a lot of them with, with what we call long COVID symptoms are people who are used to, you know, if I put all these inputs in, I get these outputs. You know, if I really work on my nutrition, I feel better. If I do a liver detox, I, I sleep better. My dreams are better. You know, I've got more energy. And they're used to being in control of their well-being. Plus, a lot of these people, in fact, all the people we're working with on long COVID collectively, you and I working on a, a three-pronged approach we'll get to, they've got really good PQ. They've got yeah. good performance yeah. intelligence. Yeah. So they know their heart rate variability. They know their resting heart rate. They know how they respond to nutrition. Yeah. Some of them we've worked with in the past, some we haven't. But they're students of human performance, and that's even more frustrating. Yeah, the people we're working with, we've often been working with for some time and, and really teaching them how to optimise their physiology and, and really to um, you know, maximise their, their physical and mental well-being. Um, and in most humans, it's predictable. If we do this, we get this. And then suddenly, post-COVID, they're putting in all the inputs it's not working. Mm. It's not, you know, they're not getting the outputs they're used to. And that lack of response or lack of control can really be deflating and really can, it really can mess up with people's mindset. And, and I think this is what I'm seeing most and uh, is that if, if you're out of control and you feel like you're now a passenger on this journey, um, then, then it really can lead to very negative thinking. I've been quoting stoicism with a number of these clients and they look at me, they look at you like we're weird, and you and I are, in a good way, we're weird. I speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah. But it, it is actually, it's a, it's a very different approach to long COVID, 
uh, yeah. to slow down. You've got to recover. You've got to allow your body, your brain. And, and it's also sitting with it. The only framework I can think of, and I'm going into psychology, but when we look at Barbara Fredrickson's broaden and build theory, mm. I like when I first heard that because it's not bad thoughts out, positive thoughts in. Mm. It says in, in any part of our lives, you're going to have some negative thoughts, but you learn to live with that. And I think what we're trying to teach people with long COVID is you've just got to embrace this, try and slow down, trust us in the process and hope that your body and brain is going to take care of itself. But that's, I, I can get it. If I was in that situation myself, Tom, I'd freak out. Yeah, and, and I think I would too because, um, you know, what, what I mean, I, I might freak out a little less now that I know some of the approaches to, to dealing with this. And I, so I'd probably, I'd probably move into that different thinking that, okay, the usual things here, I've got to switch my thinking a bit because... Uh, the, the risk factors for getting COVID are not the same risk factors for long COVID. Yep. And as soon as you appreciate that and say, okay, so um, th this, you know, this is not about blaming myself. This is just where I'm at. There are some physiological and psychological constructs at play here. And as soon as you start to think about what they are and get proactive in dealing with them, then you can come back into control of things again. Mm. And so a lot of the work that I'm doing with clients is very much about, okay, so we're moving from here to here. This is what we're going to try next. This is what we're going to try next. So you're creating, you're creating um, a structure for navigating through. And, and the reality is that a lot of people will get better. Most people will get better. The question that's unknown is how soon and the problem that, that I see for a lot of people, and you and I would be the same, is that um, we would tend to be impatient but if and we'd run, want if it now. So if you're running your own business and you're taking it through IPO, well, that's your vision. If you're running a, a big or if you're involved in a publicly listed company and every quarter you have yep. a reporting season, yeah. that's big stuff hanging over you, really big stuff. Now, allow me, please, to sound intelligent again because I believe there's a three-pronged approach to treating people with long COVID. And, yes, I got this from you. I, I've, I've actually love the learning I've had working with you, but also seeing clients respond to this. So the three-pronged approach that you advise our clients, and there's going to be an underscore to this in a moment, but number one is regain organ function. Number two, wash out inflammation, particularly through sweating to get rid of the cytokines. And number three, fire up the mitochondria. Now, the underscore on this is you wouldn't want to go and do this if you've got heart problems. Yeah, well, number one is exactly that. Number one is just... Um you know, if you had a fire in your house, you'd you'd go and assess what damage there is, and go and assess the structure, and you'd look at, you you know, you do an inventory of um, what, where things at. And so I think you have to remember that COVID is like a fire in the body, and um, you know, we, we it's been in different organs, and you know, we we have got plenty of reports of people having like scarring in the lungs or, um, you know inflammation or even scarring in the heart and can happen in other organs in the body and the kidneys as well. So so the first thing, that's why number one for me is about just assessing where the organs are. So my approach there is to um, check out physiologically where, where a person's at, what's their kidney function like, what's their liver function like, and what's their oxygenation like, what's their, um, are they excreting acids out of the body properly? So, you know, a lot of that can be 
don't treat pathology, but if there is any cardiovascular symptoms at all, I'll want to make sure that there's not um, a cardiovascular inflammation, pathology, myocarditis, something like that. So, so number one for me is about is about making sure that there's no ongoing infection at the moment, that the immune system has done its job and the levels are coming back into normal zone, that there's no things proteins circulating in the body, the blood sugar isn't still up, the insulin levels are not sky high. So just making sure that this acute phase is truly over if it's going to be over. I'm going to interpret just a little bit for someone listening to this going, whoa, <laughs> what did he go through then? I'm actually really impressed that I knew what you were talking about then because I've been riding shotgun. Uh, but Dr. Tom gets people to go get a full blood pathology and he ticks the panel and you're looking at inflammation markers, looking at what's happening to blood sugar levels just to see what's happening in the system. Yeah. And if you're worried about someone with a family history or if they are reporting any chest pain, yeah. you go and they get a... A heart check. Yeah, I'll, I'll refer uh, I'll refer clients to to go and get a stress echocardiogram, particularly if they're struggling and the heart rate's shooting up when they're exercising. There, I want to make sure that the heart's functioning properly, that the rhythm is regular, normal, and that the ventricles are pumping the way they should. Because what you don't want to do is introduce challenges or stress or challenges into somebody and actually trigger them to have a heart attack or trigger them to have something way worse than what they have. I'm going to go totally left field. I didn't know how I would get this in, but I'm going to. I see a window. Do you understand the significance of 3 minutes, 29 seconds, 0.51 for a, no. fi for a 1500 metre Australian runner? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I certainly do. Yeah. Stuart yeah. McSween in a track meet last yeah. week pulled out of a 10K with extreme heart palpitations. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, and, and this is a, if, if people listen to this because they're really interested, they're still listening now, they must be very interested. You do not want to throw more stress into a stressed body because the weakest points or the most vulnerable points are, are going to show up first. And COVID, COVID can affect the heart and running at that level well, is already a massive stressor on the heart. We started this podcast talking earlier around, um, you know, elite athletes and the effect on the heart. So we, we, we've got to really got to look after that engine. And it is a muscle. It's not made of titanium. Um, so that's, you know, I was really disappointed for him to hear that. Um, but we see that with a lot of elite cyclists as well who've come back from COVID um, and come back maybe too quick. Now, they would say, no, you know, it's not too quick. But it's too quick when you start to have symptoms or your performance goes mm. down. Um, so we do just need to really, so from my perspective with the people I work with, I just want to make sure that, that before we start doing anything else on number two or three, that medically they're in good shape and safe. Mm. Yeah. We get the tick and our clients come back. Woohoo, okay, open up. What's number two? How do you wash out and remove the cytokines and, and get people in a very different space? There's two arms to that. One, you, you need to get the liver working really well. If so, if I see any sluggish liver, uh, if I see results in the blood that indicate the liver is sluggish or struggling, um, then I really want to get the liver working better because that's going to be how you're going to start getting the toxins out of the body. And then I'll want them to sweat them out with it. With a sauna. And I recently asked you to go and look into saunas, the difference between the traditional Swedish or Finnish sauna and the infrared sauna. Before you came back to me on a report, you'd bought an infrared sauna. I take that as a thumbs up. Yeah, because it's more energy efficient. <laughs> um, I, I guess it's for to have a sauna at home. I mean, the, the, 
you know, there's a different reason why I want a sauna at home. But to have a sauna at home, you need you need one that's, you know, you don't have to wait two hours for it to heat up and it's reasonably energy efficient and it's compact and small and the infrared ticks all those boxes. Plus, it doesn't need to generate as much heat to, to create body heat and sweat. Um, it's important to sweat from the inside out. So going into a steam room is not the answer here. And you see that often in the gyms when people come in, they pour water on top of the heater and they want loads of steam, you know. They are increasing the temperature, but you don't want steam. It's not steam here. It's actually about trying to sweat from the inside out. Um, so the studies on, on longevity, you come four years of studies from Finland. They've been traditional uh, Finnish sauna. They haven't been infrared. But the physiological mechanism, it's logical, and a lot of the experts would agree that the, the physiology response to infrared sauna would be the same as the, the finished one. So, you know, if it's if it's all about sweating and it's about heat protein adaptation, it's about dilating the blood vessels, increasing blood flow, it's like exercising sitting down um, and sweating while you do it in the sauna. If it if the say you should get the same effect from the infrared. And you get some of our clients doing saunas three, four, five, six times a week. Yeah, well, the, the Finnish studies show that, you know, at least four days a week is for a longevity perspective. So, you know, you, probably need to have one at home to be able to do that without being absent from home every evening. Dr. Tom's approach, his three-pronged approach to treating long COVID, number one, regain organ function, make sure everything's working well on the inside, two, wash out the inflammation. The other thing we should add is after a sauna, have a shower. It's really important. Yeah, oh, really important. Wash yeah. off all those toxins. Because yeah, yeah. I know some people will have a sauna and then go to bed. No, 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 no. Wash the toxins yeah. off. And number three, fire up mitochondria. Ooh, we're going to talk Krebs cycle, ATP, PC. And can I go back to the only time I've actually heard Krebs cycle made sexy was Dr. Paul Batman. Hello, Paul. I'll make sure I send you an episode of this, mate, <laughs> uh, back when I studied exercise physiology. But can you explain a little bit about what's happening with mitochondria first, then how you fire it up? So what we know with well, what we think we know are certainly more than hypothesized. The evidence is pointing to is that the mitochondria, they're the energy, it's the energy making part of the cell. Remember, we're billions of cells and every cell has to make energy. Whatever its function is, maybe to contract the muscle, maybe to have clarity in the brain and think, or maybe to blink your eye. You know, you all, all these things are energy. Uh, we made that energy in the mitochondria of the cell. We need glucose molecules mostly. We need oxygen. And then to fire up like you would your car, you need to create the energy in there. What we see here in long COVID is that um, it seems like the mitochondria go sluggish. And that would help to explain a lot of the fatigue mm. and sort of foggy brain and some of the symptoms we get. So, yeah. The, yeah, we make sure there's nothing medically going on. We try and get the inflammation down and all the inflammatory mark, uh, cytokines out of the body because they all they all get in the way of creating energy. Um, and then we want to try and fire up the mitochondria. We try and get those mitochondria um, firing uh, back to being not their normal efficiency. Best way to do that? That's the loaded question. And there's a lot of trials at the moment looking at different sort of proteins and supplements and amino acids to try and do that. Um, we definitely got to move. We've got to try and move them. Um, we've got to do it. But without 
we would not stress. Yeah. Very measured, very purposeful, measured exercise, measuring recovery, stimulation, recovery, stimulation, recovery. And then there are some supplements that we can use. Um, there is a, a, a series of case studies now showing potential effectiveness of hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Mm. Um, and so I think... and, which and that's Which been, we're exploring with a, a couple of our clients. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And this this has all been you know, tried and tested and shown to work quite well in many people with chronic fatigue. Um, but here, here it's a bit different here because it's post-viral. Mm. Um, but certainly that looks to be very, very promising. I think there's potential for other things like cold therapy as well. Um, the evidence is not quite emerged yet on that. The challenge um, on cold, because, you know, I get uh, at my keynotes now, I get everyone to have a cold shower and I have men and women coming up to me after, oh, that cold shower, Andrew, it's killing me. Where do you live? I live on the Gold Coast. That's not a cold shower. That's yeah. like a lukewarm <laughs> shower. So if you can't do that, you're not going to go to a three-minute ice bath. Uh, hello, Dino Gladstone, who works with us as well doing the ice baths. But if you're not wanting to build a lot of stress into the system, it's probably not the time to go into a three-minute ice bath, is it? It's probably not the time to go and do cryotherapy. But you could basically, well, depending where you live, a cold shower might be a, a, an okay way to start. Yeah, I think a cold, cold shower, a cold shower, you know, a short cold shower can be quite invigorating and actually promote energy and um, stimulate lots of lots of um, uh, hormones in the body. Um, we don't want to add more stresses, but but we kind of do have to do these little micro stresses to sort of trigger the mitochondria into action. I'm I'm just a bit more anxious about the cryotherapy. Mm. I I like to see, yeah, a long time ago, and I have to admit I found it quite unpleasant. It's, it's a weird feeling. It's like yeah. you're it's like you're a paddle pop being stuck in the freezer. Yeah. It's, it is bizarre. So yeah. I, I think with some of the people we're working with who are struggling with cold showers, there's no way we'd accelerate them into cryotherapy or ice. No, but if, if, if evidence emerges over the next couple of months that it does show to have beneficial physiological effects, then I would start promoting it. We see seeing that with the other our other approaches. So I think for me, it's quite important to be as scientifically based as po as possible. Um, you know, I I wouldn't be promoting people go into ketosis. You know, you're adding another stressor into the body. But there are there are a lot of experts in this area that think intermittent fasting could have a role to play here in firing up the mitochondria. Um, I I would reserve until I see evidence. On Is that. there a link? between autophagy and mitochondria? I don't know, but I mean, autophagy for those, for listeners, autophagy is just how the body sort of gets rid of old defective cells. So the reason um, for asking, if you're getting rid of waste products in the old cells, yeah, yeah. does that allow you then to, to, to fire up the mitochondria that have been sleeping or, or withering away? Possibly. To be I don't continued. know. Yeah, to be continued. I, I think it's important not to there are a lot of people out there saying, oh, this, do this, do this, do this, and they're all well-intentioned. Um, I tend to want to follow the evidence and also sort of follow what would be plausible physiologically with people. And I do think with long COVID, there won't be one answer for everybody. Um, and it'll also depend on what prior exposures you've had and what your tolerances are to some of the activities and even some of the supplements that I would use. So the three-pronged approach to summarise, number one, regain organ function. Two, wash out the inflammation, especially with saunas. Three is fire up the mitochondria with a whole lot of strategies. Could be cold water. It's movement, but not too much. Can I also say, if anyone's listening to this, get some help or some support. Yeah, 
yeah, I, I think absolutely critical. I mean, I think, you know, if I was somebody with long COVID, I would go with somebody to coach me through all of this because there would be a tendency to go extreme with stuff. There would be a tendency to push hard um, and do too much of it. Um, you really, and you, you might be blinded to some of the negative effects it's giving you by doing too much or being overexposed. You know, go, going into the sauna for uh, 90 minutes, um, you know, that's going to be a stress on the body. Well, that's not what the, we're talking about here. The type yeah. of clients who are more yeah. susceptible to long COVID are the ones that will throw everything at it and try yeah. and get, get it done really quick, yeah. but that can have an adverse effect. So if you are listening to this and you want some support, uh, and I don't normally do a, a gratuitous plug in our podcast, but I'm going to reach out to Tom and I, and if we can't fit you in with our capacity, we'll at least try and point you in the right direction because don't go this alone. No, don't go it alone. And, and you know, when we talk about a three-pronged approach, you know, we, we, we may measure the physiology, we measure the hormone levels, we measure the inflammatory measures, you know, so so we're following the trail of physiology. We we check out the organs to make sure that um, somebody's not, that their symptoms are not secondary to some pathology that's going on. And then we monitor very carefully the effect of any intervention, whether it be heat therapy or cold therapy, whether it be hyperbaric oxygen exposure um, or uh, what dietary approaches we're taking or supplements, we're, we're measuring the effectiveness of them in real time um, because we're all learning here. It's This, this is a new phenomena um, and some of the ter therapies we're using have been around a long time and we're tailoring them to individuals. We've covered a lot today. Well, you've covered a lot and I've asked some probing questions. We've, number one, looked at where we are at with COVID, the latest science. Two, we've looked at the history of pandemics and you said we're going to be in this for a long time. Three, heading into winter or just generally what we should do for our overall well-being and immunity. Four, when you get or if you get COVID, what should you focus on? And five, we've spoken about approaching long COVID with a three-pronged approach. Before we wrap up, is there anything we have missed? Anything else you would like to let our listeners know? I think there's one one comment I'd like to give people is that when people do get COVID, I think generally people are pretty good at, uh, well, the symptoms are pretty good at slowing them down. And isolation is very good at breaking some of the commitments they might otherwise want to make. Um, well, I hope it is anyway. I hate to think that people are out there going to work with COVID and floating around uh, as if they didn't. Um, it is important to slow down, look after yourself. You have, I think you have a window of opportunity here to try and get as well as you can, as quick as you can by looking after yourself. Uh, most people are good at that. But my biggest fear is that then when people re-engage with the broader world, whether it's work or sport or family or that, they try to play catch up. And they, you know the work has mounted up. So if you are working with somebody with COVID or you're living with somebody who's recovered from COVID, um, give them a break try and release some of the pressure, try and encourage them to to prioritize what they need to do and get rid of the things that they don't need to do. Um, I think the other thing is to absolutely be sensitive to the fact that um, it seems to be a high, quite normal to have some degree of psychological um, discomfort from having had COVID and particularly if the symptoms are slow to go away. So um, people may be expressing high anxiety, they may be showing some symptoms of depression or mood disturbance or um, you know, not be their happy self. Um, and just to be aware of that and sympathetic of that. And if you're somebody who's got those symptoms, please, please reach out to people for help. 
Um, don't try and do it alone. Great advice. Lots of great advice today. Thank you for coming in, specifically talking about this. It's, it's such a topical point in every conversation now. There's so much misinformation. There's so much bullshit. So it's great having the facts and some strategies around it. We are going to come back in a month or two and we'll talk about PQ. So we'll talk more about the pointy end of performance, whereas today was specifically on COVID and strategies around that. Dr. Tom Buckley, as always, it was a pleasure chatting. My pleasure, Andrew. Thank you. Hey, it's Andrew, and we hope you enjoyed that episode. We would really appreciate it if you helped us amplify the Strive Stronger with Andrew May podcast by sharing episodes with colleagues and friends and going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help us get this message out to a wider audience. And if you would like to know more about how Strive Stronger uplifts teams through optimizing human performance and well-being, make sure you check out strivestronger.com. And if you'd like to know more about my personal practice, focusing on all things human performance, go to andrewmade.com, where you can explore the books I have written, including MatchFit, which has now sold over 85,000 copies, or book me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite. Or if you'd like to really turbocharge your business and personal success and wake up to a better way of living, working and leading, check out my brand new evidence-based Human Performance Academy that starts in July. I'm really, really looking forward to getting that going. And if you'd like to receive regular updates from me each month, make sure you subscribe to my monthly e-newsletter, The AM Edition.